Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Abstract. It is an absolute pleasure to have you listening to us today. I want to give you a quick snippet from an abstract from a recent publication by our guest today. I think this is going to hook you in right away. Okay, here it is. It's time for space organizations to embrace a new discipline, space sexology, the scientific study of extraterrestrial intimacy and sexuality. We conclude in this paper that space programs and exploration require a new perspective, one that holistically addresses the intimate and sexual needs of humans in our pursuit of a spacefaring civilization. Those are the words of Simon Zubé and colleagues, and we have Simon here with us today to talk all about this and much, much more. Simon, it is great to have you. Welcome to the show. A pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jeremy, for the invitation. You're very welcome. Please tell us a bit more about yourself. So I'm a PhD candidate in psychology at Concordia University. Mm -hmm. I specialize in human sexuality, sex tech, and aerobotics, the study of human-machine erotic interaction and coevolution. But my work also explores space sexology and how we can integrate sex research into space program. I'm also a student representative of the International Academy of Sex Research and a general co-chair of the International Congress on Love and Sex with Robots. And in recent years, I've become more and more interested in how we can apply new technology to help astronauts and future space inhabitants have sex and intimate relationships in space context. I don't think either of us is going to be going into space anytime soon, but we might be doing other things to which this Absolutely. may apply. So this is awesome. Really excited to have you. The official release date for this episode is the day before Valentine's Day. So shout out to all of you Valentine's lovers out there. This one's for you. So there's, there's a whole bunch of really cool terms that you dropped here in your introduction, which is great. I want to make sure that we hit on all of them today. So this is uh, sex tech, aerobotics, which is, it sounds like a fusion of erotic and robotics. Is that correct? That's exactly it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so that's, that's the study of, of like erotic interactions. So, so this is amazing. So we've got all those. We've got space sexology. My goal for the day is to make sure that we get to talk about all of these things together. I do just want to mention one thing off the bat. In your paper, which I'm going to link, by the way, in the show notes, you mentioned that one of your goals is to draw attention to the lack of research on space intimacy and sexuality. And then you go on to reference 133 papers in the process. So while space sexology might be a newish thing, it seems like it kind of fits snugly within this already vast expanse of space exploration research. Yeah, absolutely. I think... We're not the first to obviously suggest that we should be uh, giving attention to the intimacy and sexuality in space context. We are definitely not the first to study psychology of human sexuality, sexology, mm -hmm. in the case of aerobotics, human-machine interaction. But in the case of uh, space sexology, we really decided that it was time. It is time for us to tackle these issues as we go into space. So. The goal of that paper that I wrote with my colleagues, Maria Santaguida, Dave Antti, Lisa Giacari, and Dr. Judith Lapierre, was to bring together the existing literature on space sexology, which is pretty limited, but also 
reintegrated within the broader context of human factor and technical research, as well as everything that we already know about the biopsychosocial aspects and development of human sexuality. To really understand that, I mean, these issues, they're not, they don't stand alone. They're part of the larger exploration of human mm -hmm. life and human sexuality as we journey into space. And we already know a lot about yeah. human sexuality and cognition, and now it's time to apply it to uh, space exploration. Even just the word biopsychosexuality or biopsychosociality, there's, there's like so many things already packed into just that single word that if you want to bridge the gap between sex and every other aspect of human life, that sounds like a lifelong journey in and of itself. So I look forward to seeing how this career develops for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just when I say biopsychosocial, we just need to remember that obviously human sexuality has biological components from genetics, neurochemistry, physiological responses, mm -hmm. cultural component and social component that have to do with how we deal with norms, taboos, uh, pleasure, rituals, and also the psychological component, our cognition, our personality, our norms, the way we respond and our attitudes in these contexts and these sexual contexts, all of them come into play in the development of our own sexuality, in the enactment of our own sexuality, and in this case, the enactment of our sexuality in space habitats. When there are so many things that are all coming to a head at the same time, like how do you, how do you decide where to even begin? Did you start with the psycho? Did you start with the socio? And was that related to your background? Well, yeah, of course. Uh, so we came from a um, psychological perspective and psychology of human sexuality perspective. Mm -hmm. Some members of our team also came from psychosocial perspective and human factor in space perspective. But I would have to say that looking at the literature, when we delve into these issues, we definitely realized that most of the existing literature had to do with the biological component and especially reproductive health, especially issues that had to do with how can animals in general reproduce mm -hmm. outside of our home planet and when we delve into that we realize look there's more to that when it comes to dealing with human intimacy and sexuality in space it's not just a matter of reproducing it's a matter of how we live our own sexuality and live with others our own sexuality and intimacy in the context of space habitat so there was a lot that had yet to be covered and not a lot of research done on any of these aspects so the paper itself is kind of a call for action a call for research okay nice well let this episode be a physical or digital instantiation of that call and we're going to put it out into the wild so that's great are we already having sex in space like are, are are, are we asking these questions now because they're pressing and these are things happening immediately, like right as we speak? I don't think so. I mean, as of now, no sex in space has happened. There's rumors, there's speculations about people having relationships, other people maybe masturbating, but these are rumors. They've been denied systematically by both astronauts and space organization. So right now, the official word there is no form of sex that has happened in is this space. because there's rules against it like our astronauts told you may not touch thine penis you may not <laughs> fornicate with another person like is is it explicit uh some people have said that there yeah is obviously a formal policy uh, mm -hmm. for instance of you cannot have sex uh, aboard the international space station got it <laughs> that said who would uh, want to go there <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean if we look at the future of our exploration and spacefaring civilization, 
I mean, if we want to extend space for long periods of time and eventually settle uh, new worlds or at least go on long journeys or inhabit these habitats for an ever longer periods of time, whether that be the moon or Mars or beyond, I mean, these rules will eventually have to change. Unless, for instance, we're able to uh, go to sleep for many months. But even then, mm -hmm. if we do want to become a multiplanetary species, so inhabit multiple planets and multiple worlds, eventually we'll have to allow people to have sex. And rather than wait for problems to arise, we're proposing that we tackle these issues head-on, develop mm -hmm. protocols, systems, and trainings to allow the safe, healthy enactment of human eroticism in space context. I think that makes complete sense. To preempt the issues before they even happen, I was thinking about how this is kind of similar to what's going on with like people researching ethics behind artificial intelligence before we hit the singularity, so we actually know how to handle it when it comes our way. So this is this is very interesting. Actually, you might appreciate this. I, I just read about something called Love Cloud. Have you heard about this service? Uh, yeah, the um, the plane that yeah. goes and a lot of people. Yeah, obviously, I think. Uh, <laughs> There, there's a good analogy there in the sense that one of the big sector that is booming and is is pooling a lot of investment is space tourism mm -hmm. and the obviously having fun and the, the leisure and pleasure sector that will develop around space exploration or orbital mission or trip to the moon and Mars. Eventually, yeah, there's probably a lot of people who might be interested in paying a certain amount of money to... Uh, get it on uh, outside of our own it's planet. Like, it uh, sounds like your your PhD, your, which you're almost nearing, the, like I think the end of the fifth year of your PhD, you haven't embarked on this journey in academia f for the purposes of helping people leisurely get it on in space. It, it sounds like you have much grander aspirations. Obviously, uh, I am a big proponent of uh, the fact that sexual pleasure is important, sex is fun, and it's fun in itself, it's an inherent good. I mean, enacting and allowing safe, healthy human sexuality on our planet and outside our planet, and also with machines and in space context and all of these issues, is just a fundamentally important aspect in our life. Sex is central, and finding ways to become better erotic partners as technology advances and as we go out into space is, uh, in my head, primordial for the future of humanity. So mm -hmm. if I really have to describe my work, I'd say I'm, I'm really trying to bring sexology to the 21st century. I'm excited to see what that looks like in the course of our discussion today. I guess the next thing I'm curious to know about, like space exploration itself is, is very risky business. I'm assuming space sex is equally risky. Like what are some of the current known issues about sex and reproduction in space? And what are some of the known unknowns <laughs> that we haven't seen yet or experienced yet, but we know are kind of lurking out there in terms of sex and reproduction? Yeah, good question. I mean, when we think about the risk, but also the benefits of sex in space, I think the first equation that people need to have in their mind is that imagine all the complexity and challenges of human sexuality on Earth, <laughs> then multiply that by what it means to live in space, the space conditions of orbital stations of base on the moon or settlement in Mars or spaceship on long term journey and then multiply that by time factor. Then you get a sense of how complex and risky life, and in this case, the enactment of human sexuality and intimacy in space is. The, the known risk that we often hear have to do with microgravity or reduced gravity or total weightlessness, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot about radiation, which can impair the DNA of cells and gametes. Like I said, reduced gravity can lead to deconditioning, uh, muscle atrophy, visual and neurovestibular impairments. So influencing your vision, nutrition intake, your sleep, the Whoa. radiation can degrade your cells. Then add to that lack of privacy, the challenges of hygiene, the psychosocial stress and oxidative stress that living in space in remote, confined environments can create. Then add to that the challenges that have to do with all the different stages of reproduction within this context, the challenges that have to do and risk that pertain to developing and building uh, relationships, whether they be casual or long-term with other people, maybe with people of different rank that are part of your crew, individuals that you you spend your whole day uh, working with that you rely Three on. Three hours later, <laughs> the fact that you have a dog at home you got to feed, you, did I turn the oven off? I mean, at some point, yeah, obviously, yeah, there's also yeah. The, the, the risk of like, some people will go into space and maybe leave partners behind. How is that affecting their mood and yeah. whatnot? But you have to imagine all of the challenges that are in our own life that in the context of space missions will take on a new form as they are constrained by the reality of space conditions, microgravity, whatnot, living in small groups. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I can just simply give you a very clear example, think about what it would mean for you to be on a three-year journey with a crew of 30 individuals. Then there's John, who maybe falls in love with John or Jane or Tara. And then this person is the captain, the other is the medical engineer, the other one is a software engineer. They all work together, they all rely on one another. Then one couple breaks up, one person starts dating another, they have sex, uh, someone is jealous, the other person uh, mm-hmm. feels left out. Some people have different sexual preferences or orientations. They don't have access to partners for four years or three years and whatnot. Yeah. Then uh, you get a colony, then you multiply that by, <laughs> let's say, 100, then 1,000, then 10,000 individuals to make it feasible. I mean, we're talking about life in space. So It sounds like there's a certain early period where things are going to be very difficult but we're billions of people on earth now and we just like figured out how to deal with all of these things like jealousy and you know there are still people who have workplace relationships and things work out like life goes on but it it sounds like like this this early 30 person group is that critical point where you need to make sure everything is stable and nothing goes goes wrong because that's where the entire mission can just blow up it's a good point but let's not assume that we have it figured out here as well there's all kinds of there's all kinds of violence, jealousy, uh, relationship breakup, heartaches, thing, all kinds of situations that happen here on Earth that could happen in space, but the risks are not the same if they do in both places. It's one thing if one partner, for instance, uh, breaks up or if it is victim of sexual harassment or there's some form of issue here on Earth with the resources that Earth might have to the disposal of, of individuals or the possibilities of going away or finding partner. But when you're in space, if an issue arises between two individuals, where do you go? Where do you go? You're in a spaceship, you're in a space. It's not as easy to put distance and safety and access resources, whether they're human or others, 
we have to think very carefully about what it means. It's not just the first 30 individuals. Yes, it's a critical point. I agree mm -hmm. with you, but on the other end, it's more than that. Even as the colonies or settlement grow and become bigger, there still is some challenge until mm -hmm. we figure out how to occupy very <laughs> important space, let's say, for instance, on Mars, on a colony. We need to think about all of these issues and prepare those who will go on these missions, live their lives in space, and those who may eventually be born outside of our home planet. So that's a really good point. Like some of the problems that we're going to have to deal with in space are problems that are already happening here. And I guess I was maybe downplaying it, but it sounds like we could potentially run some experiments with individuals on Earth who are going through things like breakups and who are experiencing terrible things like sexual harassment or anything in between or outside of those specific examples. Is there already research like that that's being done where we're observing normal human behavior on planet Earth? Yes, absolutely. There's not enough in the space sector, but we are aiming to change that. But obviously, there's a lot of experiment going on about human sexuality, sexual responses, intimate relationships, including in some confined environments, whether they be prisons, small settlements, mm. on all kinds of uh, different regions in the world, across cultures and, se and settings. We have to leverage, obviously, this base knowledge to anticipate what could happen, how we deal with it, develop protocols and whatnot. We have to rely on the already acquired knowledge that we have of human intimacy and sexuality on Earth. But that said, it's not enough. This just forms the basis of certain thing that we should consider and thing that could happen. It just gives us a roadmap to like I said at the beginning, multiply the complexity of that. Mm -hmm. How does how do we anticipate that this might play out in space context? And there are many ways of testing that nowadays. We can think about analog missions, simulation missions, replicating all forms of space condition, whether they be microgravity or radiation here on Earth, to test some of these hypotheses. Obviously, you cannot start irradiating people and see how uh, this influenced their sexuality, but in analog missions, you can obviously run experiments to test, for instance, how do people have desires? Are they attracted to their partners uh, or their colleagues within missions? You can ask them questions about their anxiety, depression, stress, and their sexual function before, during, and after uh, a mission. You can also look at how maybe being abstinent or enacting certain aspects of their sexuality within these contexts might influence their own performance, their well-being, and their crew dynamic, as well as ultimately the mission success. So all of these things, we already have the tools. That's what NASA, anyone uh, are wanting to do, the Canadian Space Agency, any organization who wants to do the, these experiments, we have the expertise. Okay, we have plenty mm -hmm. of researchers, plenty of methodologies all over the world to explore aspects of the psychology of human sexuality and sexology in general. And we just need to build collaboration to adapt them and start gathering data right now. <laughs> right now, this is the call to action part of the episode. <laughs> One thing that is that keeps kind of pinging me in the brain is like, you already mentioned the psycho, socio, etc. aspects of human interaction, whether you bring sexuality into the mix or not. It almost makes sense to maybe introduce some ex external factor that can control all of that. So I remember watching a bit of a movie where they were like, they basically had a bunch of young people get on a spaceship to repopulate somewhere else. And they were feeding them a steady diet of like some, some kind of 
sexuality suppressant. I, I, I see you're nodding along like you've heard about this before. I don't think that's necessarily the best thing. We don't want to be like drugging people necessarily. But you did already speak about your interest and focus on sex technology and aerobotics. I wonder if, like I was asking before, where do we begin? What if we can begin by actually producing external technologies that can help mitigate some of the issues that are created due to our inherent biological, psychological, sociological, cultural nature? Do we begin by fixing our psychology or do we begin by creating technologies that allow us to not have to worry about it so much? Excellent question. Both. We don't have to choose. <laughs> we need to be gathering data and developing, like I said, trainings to instore sex positive ethics and ideology within those who will go into space so that they understand that the expression of their own sexuality is something good that needs to be respected but that they also need to respect the expression and eroticism of others, uh, that they need to learn how to deal and communicate their desires in a safe and healthy way and express them also in a safe and healthy way. On the other end, at the same time, we can also think about how to allow external stimuli and develop technology, technological system that will allow the safe expression of human sexuality in space. Living in space is already a technological feat. Okay, True, yeah. all of the environment in which astronauts are living are highly technological. The air they breathe, the water they drink, the way they excrete, everything that they eat, everything is technology. <laughs> so why yeah. not, why not also develop systems that could allow, for instance, astronauts and future space inhabitants to stay close to uh, one another in gravity or to hygienically masturbate or having partnered sex, why don't we, for instance, create systems that would allow maybe VR or augmented reality so that they can have some form of erotic stimulations with themselves, with a partner within their crew or outside of their crew, maybe mm -hmm. with your partner that's left on earth. Maybe you want to keep on the spark. And let's be clear. I'm not saying that everyone should use these technology at all time. Everyone has different desires and needs. Some people might be able to go months without sex or without uh, some form of intimacy. Everyone has different levels. Mm -hmm. Other people might masturbate every day before they go to sleep. And that's good for them. It helps them sleep, relax, uh, feel better. I'm just saying we need to be thinking of how we allow the wide spectrum and meet the needs of everyone as we go into space. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I'm glad that you kind of took me out of my dichotomous thinking mind here of one or the other. I guess now I'm just really curious to know what kind of technologies already exist or could exist that would be able to connect astronauts with astronauts in, in other space habitats or on Earth or with themselves through, like you already mentioned, virtual reality. What are some of the most cutting edge technologies that you've heard of or seen that you think might be really promising? Let's start, let's say, at the simplest and build up to... Sure, let's do the... it. I'm ready. Let's climax in a few minutes. Yeah. I think we should obviously start with just straps and systems so that people can uh, be old into place and be close to one another. Contraption, we can think about the Vanabanta suit or other garments that could bring partners together. That's for, let's say, partnered sex. The Vanabanta suit? Sorry, what, what is that? Yeah, the Vanabanta suits... Uh, is a garment so that uh, can uh, hold two individuals together in um, low or total weightlessness or microgravity. So some people have been thinking of how are we going to have sexual intercourse or partnered sex in space where there's no gravity, and that was yeah. a solution. Other solution can be developed. Now for 
sex alone, we can be thinking about simple sex toys. Doesn't have to be cutting edge. Uh, right, I, okay, I, gotcha. I gotcha. think um, vibrators for women and dildos, as well as uh, for... Uh, for males, we can be thinking about sleeves and masturbators. That could be an hygienic way to maybe prevent ejaculation going everywhere. Like, we mm -hmm. need to be thinking about these very practical hygienic uh, aspects in, in space yeah. context. If we go another levels, we can be thinking about VR, obviously virtual reality, to allow people to have access to maybe more interactive or diversified sexual stimulation and stimuli within these contexts. These VR technology can be combined with sex toys to mm -hmm. form some more interactive sexual stimulation. We can be thinking about these VR environments and everything that's being developed around virtual worlds, also as a way to connect people where they can meet mm -hmm. within these virtual worlds, whether that be someone in their crew, someone outside of their crew, or a partner on Earth. The idea of having an astronaut in a virtual reality helmet virtually realitying themselves onto a planet is like kind of mind-bending that we could even get to that point it's like you leave earth and then you're trying to find ways to to virtually return yourself back to earth in order to satisfy sexual needs uh, it's a beautiful thing it's a circle of life I think. I think there's something very interesting there and we're kind of already doing that i mean right now we're also creating vr and virtual worlds to anticipate what it will be like to live on mars or space habitats so that People can visit Mars base and orbital space station uh, using VR goggles. Mm -hmm. So why not also do the opposite way around so that when you're in space, you can also explore other environments or go back, like you said, to Earth and your partners. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, um, did you get to see the L'Infini exhibit? I don't think so. There, there was an exhibit in Montreal. It was a VR experience where you got to basically go onto the International Space Station. No, I've went to another at the uh, Phi Center. There was another VR one, but no, I've not went to the uh, the Infinite one. Cool. But that's exactly what I mean. Okay. That's exactly the kind of technology that yeah. uh, that I'm thinking about. It's there, yeah. It's 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 definitely here now. Perfect. If, Keep going. Okay, so let's get even more intense. <laughs> if if we go again a notch, obviously there can be artificial partners and bots in virtual worlds, but we can also be thinking about leveraging new advancements in AI and robotics to have artificial partners with us in spaceships and space station, whether they be, like I said, in virtual worlds or maybe embodied like a robot. Now, the advantage of this is that they can be intimate and sexual partners. I'm not saying they'll, they'll replace humans. I'm not saying that they will be able to provide the same form of support, but they can be an option, either a some form of partner that could allow for sexual gratification and pleasure, uh, some form of companionship. They can be used also to monitor people's health and sexual health because sometimes, unfortunately, because sex is taboo and it can influence the uh, rest of your lives and you might not feel comfortable disclosing some sensitive information to one of your colleagues, we, we need to be thinking also about other ways to provide emotional and intimate support in these contexts. And there's plenty of things that you might want just to disclose to an entity. You want to talk to someone that is not like a, like a robotherapist in a sense. Yeah, exactly. So we can be thinking about a combination of a robotherapist that could also be your robot lover. But when I say <laughs> oh, robot, yeah. uh, I want to say that one of the big constraints right now, at least uh, as we go into space, is space. <laughs> in the sense that space habitats for now will be relatively small. Mm -hmm. Bringing stuff from Earth into space is extremely costly in general. For now, I think maybe VR and maybe augmented reality and such technology might be a better way of go in combination with other forms of aptic equipment to allow people to 
connect with others inside and outside their crew, but also allow them to build intimate relationships and enact their own sexuality. Yeah, just a comment on the space thing here in terms of like volumes. The volume on the Soyuz spacecraft that brings astronauts to the space station and back, I believe the volume is something like four cubic meters, which is kind of like if you were standing in a giant sphere. Well, I say giant, but a sphere that you could pretty much almost touch if you extended your arms all the way out. That yeah. would be approximately the volume. There are three people who sit in there. It's pretty tight, and they have lots of other equipment in there too. So if that's the kind of space we have, you were mentioning how it's difficult to just pin yourself to a surface. But even if you can pin yourself to a surface, you got to have room to move around mm -hmm. as well. So it, it, it's interesting yeah. that when you go to space, we think of space as this infinite expanse. But when we're living in it, we actually have to confine ourselves to very small spaces. Exactly. Well, obviously, the habitats, like the base, lunar base, Mars base, and settlements, as well as some of the starships that, uh, for instance, SpaceX are developing, they, they won't be just four cubic meters. Right, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would hope not. But, but that being said, especially in the early days, these environments won't be gigantic. And that is a constraint that we need to address, obviously, for the privacy enactment of human sexuality and hygiene, we need to keep these environments obviously habitable and agreeable, to, mm -hmm. like pleasant to live in. But also, like I said in the beginning, and I mentioned, we need to be thinking, if there's an issue that arises, where do you go? Who do you tell? How do you deal with these uh, situations where you heavily rely on your coworkers? So here's one thing that I'm already aware of, which is that to become an astronaut in the first place, to be able to get the green light to, at some point in your life, maybe, if you're lucky, go to space, you need to pass rigorous testing, like psychological testing, physical testing. So it seems like maybe we don't need to fix all of the kind of like psychological issues that we've addressed because we're already getting the cream of the crop of human beings who are probably the least likely to have like relationships and then they break up and it's messy. Of course, there's a lot of unknown and we want to mitigate all those factors that we can, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that we're already selecting, at least for these first 30 people, let's say, to be able to actually work together coherently. It's, a, it's a, an absolutely uh, good point, and you're absolutely right in, in that sense, but I'll say that, and <laughs> I'm, I'm here stealing the words of Dr. Shania Pandya, we have to kind of break the myth of the superhero, superhuman astronaut. Astronauts are humans okay mm -hmm. i agree with you they are the 3.5 standard deviation of many on many many levels and cooperation skills capacity for problem solving uh, they are rigorously uh, trained screened and it, it's a huge pyramid we we have thousands and thousands of individuals applying for these programs getting through that and then it's a huge pyramid up until the last few 10 to 30 individuals who are in, are in these programs fully agree with that. So maybe some of these astronauts currently, they're able to withstand uh, conditions of abstinence that most people won't. That being said, I think we'd be surprised if we interviewed some of these as astronauts and if they really uh, disclose what their feelings are. Maybe you're right. Maybe uh, we would discover also that they have their own sex drives, uh, that they've learned in plenty of ways to deal with that. And ultimately, we also have to be mindful that as technology allows more and more people to go into space, 
those that will go into space won't all be these highly screen at the level that we're doing right now, space inhabitants and astronauts. So we have also to think ahead about those who will go into space as tourists, as scientists and researchers, mm -hmm. and those who will go into space to settle new worlds, and not just the first 30 and 100 individuals who will land on Mars and start building colony and then come back or stay there. We have to think larger. We have to think bigger. We have to think about the future of humanity in space. And that, I think, is an inspiring thought we have to start now gathering data for not just the next 30 years, but maybe the next 100 to 1,000. I love the forward thinking for sure. And I think it's important too that since we already have a handful of individuals who have been to space and who are currently in space, like you said a minute ago, these are people who might be willing to share their experiences, their inner thoughts while they're there. So even though it's hard to run experiments in space because there's not a lot of space and there's not a lot of people, we can still try and harvest as much information as we can from the few who are still here and who have had that experience. I, I hope that we're doing that now or at least have plans. Absolutely, fully agree. And I'll add to that that obviously we can interview those who went to space, who plan to go into space, who are maybe into space right now, but we can also look at the huge pyramid that I was mentioning of people who are going through trainings and the pyramid of uh, screening process and selection, mm -hmm. who go through simulation mission and analog missions in Antarctica and the desert and whatnot, and ask them how they're experiencing mm -hmm. being apart from a partner or not being able to necessarily express their intimacy or masturbate or having partner sex or are they falling in love uh, with one another? Uh, are they attracted to one another? How is this influencing their own well-being and performance and how is it influencing crew dynamics? Not a lot of people are talking. However, like the more I, I talk to people who went through these experiments or are planning for it, whether they be at the International Space University or working with NASA and, and the Canadian space agencies, the more I'm realizing that there is taboo, there is a lot of barriers preventing, but there's a change coming. Okay, people are feeling it, people are talking about it. I think it's it's up to our generation to just tip the scale for the future and realize and recognize that this is a central issue and we have to address it right now because producing quality science and data, especially when it comes to human psychology and sexuality, it takes a tremendous amount of time and resources. The urgency that you're sending this message out into the world with is actually really inspiring because I think humans often act too late. or We're, we're very reactive species, as I think many species are. I guess we, we call ourselves very evolved, but we still are very reactive. And so the fact that you are now nearing the end of your PhD and I think going into continue with academia, postdocs, etc., professorship, who knows what lies ahead, that you're opening up these discussions, you're asking really, really big questions, important questions, trying to unpack human psychology and biology all at the same time. So I knew we would be able to get to you know everything that has to do with all of your research. We can't boil a PhD down into 35 minutes, but I think we've kind of scratched the surface to, uh, at least for me, what has so far been a sufficient degree. And I definitely want to have you back on at some point so we can continue to unravel this story. Because even though you said you're not the first one and your research group is not the first to discuss space sexology, it does feel very new. It does feel cutting edge. And there's so many different intersection points where cool experiments and discoveries can happen. So that's awesome. There was one question that I was like hesitating. I was like, should I ask this question? But it, I, I'm just curious because sometimes asking big questions is nice, but even bigger ones too. Do you think there's intelligent life out in the world, in the universe? Do you think it's there? And would we be able to actually produce viable offspring with it? 
Uh, first questions. I mean, if I have to put my money on something, I'd say yes, but I'm not one also to just say that there is or isn't or something. I'm just waiting for the proof. I'm uh -huh. one for waiting for the data, but if I have to put my money on something, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a good chance, but there's plenty of very smart people who would say uh, otherwise, so I'm very agnostic about that. I'm kind of hoping there is, because that'd be interesting. Yeah, I agree. You're you're operating under this like innocent until proven guilty kind of thing, right? You believe. Yeah. Exactly. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm what I'm convinced is that if we want to find out, we have to plan ahead uh, for a larger space expansion, and that will have to deal with human sexuality if we want to find out. I think uh, addressing human sexuality is the key to unlocking space and our long-term expansion in the universe. Can you remind me what the second question is? The second question was, do you think that we could produce viable offspring with alien species? Oh, with alien species, uh, well, well, let's start by um, being able to reproduce with ourselves uh, <laughs> in space, and then uh, maybe we can figure out uh, more complex and uh, very out there challenges. But Look, you're the preemptive researcher here. You're the one who's trying to solve problems before they happen. I'm just thinking way ahead. We're talking tens of thousands of years now, right? I mean, yeah, we can uh, we can speculate. There's plenty of science fiction out there. But what I, I really want to leave people with is that we just need to figure out how to reproduce uh, with our own species and build health. Let's figure out first how to build healthy and safe human sexuality in space and then uh, move on to bigger and better things. <laughs> awesome. We're going to straddle the line between short-term goals, long-term goals, big questions, small questions, psychology, sexuality, space. Is is there anything that we haven't said yet that uh, a message you really want to get out, or do you feel like we've we've, we've kind of wrapped it up nicely? We've definitely uh, covered a lot of grounds, um, but if there's one thing I'd like to say in the end is, if there's anyone out there from space organization that are listening to this podcast, please reach out. Okay, we need to build collaboration and bring everyone who has the expertise and willingness to contribute to these kinds of issues, whether that be to make. The population understand this is critical, but also space organization to build programs that will tackle holistically the reality of human intimacy and sexuality in space. Because like I said, this is the key to unlocking our long-term expansion in the universe. Amazing. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for once again this call to action. If you're listening right now, send this around. Get your friends involved. Get your grandparents involved. Get anybody who you know involved because we got to spread this word because we're going to space, baby. It's happening. So thank you so much, Simon, for being on the show. Absolute pleasure chatting with you today. And like I said, I definitely want to keep in touch. So we're going to keep a line of communication open because this may be the end of your PhD, but it's the beginning of a career. So it's going to be exciting. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Abstract Coal in the Future of Science. Always a pleasure creating and discussing and having you join me. If you like this episode or if you've got problems with the episode, regardless anything in between, I want to hear from you. You can shoot me an email, abstractcast at gmail.com. You can touch base on Instagram at abstractcast. And if you've got an Apple ID, a review would be so appreciated. If you've got ideas for future episodes or are a graduate student yourself, you should definitely hit up my inbox. Now it's 2022, so we're not releasing weekly episodes anymore, but we still will be releasing content this year, so keep tuning back in and have a great rest of the day.